If you would, take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 4. I promise we are going to finish Genesis. Uh, There are times it may not feel like it, but we will. Uh, We will not be in Genesis this Sunday nor next Sunday. Uh, I'm doing what I I have done the last couple of years, is taking an opportunity in the month, basically the month of January, and and preach some vision sermons. Um, And so Sunday the 12th of February, we'll get back in Genesis, and we will not leave it until we are done. We've got five sermons left, uh, and that'll take us right up to Easter. So there is, a, there is an end game for, for Genesis. But what I want to do this Sunday and next is give you a, a broad overview uh, to some greater detail that I will give in August uh, relative to vision and a lot of the praying and planning we've been doing uh, as a church recently. Now, typically, we have an annual theme for our uh, calendar year at Westminster. Last year was the year of outreach. And we talked a lot about our outreach ministries. If you remember, I asked you to fill out a note card where you were going to uh, you know, devote to praying for three people in your life who are not Christians. And so we, we talked a lot about outreach. This year, 2023, as far as our rotation is concerned, was supposed to be the year of worship uh, as far as the, a, a vision theme. Now, we're still going to worship. It's not like we're, we're putting pause on that. But that will now be the 2024 vision theme. The reason for that is we are going to talk a lot this year about what is the big vision for our church, okay? What do we want to see? What are we hoping and praying the Lord will do in our midst over the next five to ten years of our church? And again, this morning and next Sunday, very broad strokes I'm going to paint with. But as the spring goes on, and then particularly as we get into August, there are going to be a lot more detail. Now, just to comfort those of you who do not like change, you're going to realize a lot of things are going to stay remarkably the same, okay? And that's a good thing. Uh, But there are some new emphasis and some new um, sort of uh, directions we want to go with some of our ministries uh, that we want to tell you about here uh, in the months to come. A great place to start when thinking about vision for the church of Jesus Christ is the idea of the kingdom of God. It's not something we talk about often, I don't think, and yet the Lord uses this phrase a lot. Kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, those are interchangeable terms there. What does he mean when he says that? What does it mean that you and I are a part of the kingdom of God? Really, if you wanted to take Jesus' message in totality and distill it down to something very small, you could say his message was about the kingdom of God. The gospel is about the kingdom of God. Uh, and so I want to talk a lot about that, uh, particularly in August. We're going to look at the kingdom parables from the Gospel of Matthew. We'll dive deeply into those as we also talk about the vision of our church. With all of that in mind, uh, and also let me tell you, the introduction to this sermon is the first probably two-thirds of the sermon. <laughs> There's a long introduction, okay, because there's a lot of setup here, and then we will get into the text. But first let me read it. Matthew 4 verses 12 to 25. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. 
From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. In the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let us pray. O Lord, would you teach us now from your word? Lord, would we hear and believe that it would change us? Lord, that you would call us and help us understand better this morning what it means to be a disciple, a follower and a learner of you. And indeed, Lord, you would help us now also to yearn to make disciples of all those around us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You know, the idea of kings and kingdoms, it's a little bit difficult for us as Americans to understand, isn't it? Okay, we see other nations that have kings and kingdoms, but we were a nation founded specifically because we did not want a king. We did not want to any longer be underneath the English king. We wanted to be our own deal, our own nation. We didn't want one person to have all authority and power. We wanted a plurality of leadership, checks and balances, much the same way the Presbyterian church functions today. And so the kings and queens that we see, even around the world, don't have the kind of power and authority that we see in the scriptures. We look at England. The kings and queens are not much more than a figurehead. They may do a lot of great philanthropic things, but no real power. And so we watch the kings and queens and the royalty of England, and all we really care is the latest fashion worn by Kate Middleton. We see the documentary of Harry and Meghan. Maybe we mourn the death of Queen Elizabeth, and really all of us can't believe that someone like Charles is about to be coronated as king in May. In the first century, however, we saw royalty, or the people of God saw royalty, in a far different way. The king was the sovereign. You obeyed the king. The king made the rules, you followed the king. If you didn't follow the king, you were in rebellion against the king, and you would be punished for that. The king for the people of Israel was the highest authority. He ruled over everything. Everything within the bounds of his kingdom, he was responsible. Responsible for their safety, responsible to make sure they obeyed what he said. And he could ask them to do anything that he wanted to, and they had to do it. So when Jesus is looking for an analogy... An analogy for this Christian life and this kingdom that he has come to establish, as he says in this passage, kings and kingdoms seem most obvious for him to choose. The difference between Christ, of course, is that he is always a good king. The kings in the Bible, sometimes it's said of them, and they did what was right in the sight of the Lord. More often it's said they did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord. Christ is our king. And in this passage, he's saying that the kingdom is here, right now. Here's what you need to do. 
You need to repent and you need to believe in this good news that I have come to proclaim to you. This passage is the setup to what is most likely Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And before he delivers this exhortation, he tells them, the kingdom is here. Or as Mark puts it in his gospel, Mark chapter 1, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Paul picks up on the echoes of this language, doesn't he, in the passage we looked at for Advent in Galatians 4. Right? The time is fulfilled. Right? The time has come. Christ comes into the world, and now Jesus relates that to the coming of his kingdom. The kingdom of God is at hand. Literally what that says, the kingdom of God has come to now. How do we know that? Well, the king is here because Jesus is beginning his ministry. And what has he come to do? He's come to deliver the message of the kingdom, which is the good news about himself. He's come to carry out the method of the kingdom, the teaching and preaching about who he is and what his disciples are meant to do, namely, follow him. And he has come to carry out the ministry of the kingdom, which includes that preaching, but it also will include all the healing he's going to do. Or for our sakes, loving others, meeting needs, making disciples, being disciples. That is the kingdom of God. Wherever that message is being preached, wherever that method is being used, and wherever wherever that type of ministry is being carried out. Jesus is saying it's actually simple. It's not simple to do, but it's simple in its explanation. If you want to be a part of the kingdom of God, your step one is repenting of your sin. Step one is acknowledging, I am not king. I'm not king of this world. I'm not king of my own life. I'm not king in the church I'm a part of. He is. We're following his rule. We're not following our desires. We're not following our own wishes. We're not following the message that we come up with. We are trying to understand what he says. And we want to do everything that he wants. And so we want to set up ministries that best enhance that. Best enhance our understanding of who he is. Best enhance how can we all do this together. Because we are unclean and unfit for the kingdom. We must repent. We must take upon ourselves by faith all that he has done for us. So the sermon this morning, Westminster, is assuming we believe this. I'm making an assumption. Okay? I'm assuming that you have repented of your sin. I'm assuming that you know that you are not king and lord of your life, that you believe that Christ is. And I'm assuming that you desire to be a part of this Christian life that is focused in on being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, if that does not fit the explanation of you today, that does not mean the sermon is not for you. I believe that it is. It's, I hope, an understanding for you what the Christian life really is about. And for everyone in here who knows Christ by faith, it all began in saying, I turn from that sin and I turn unto Christ by faith. Now, that's not a perfect process by any means, as you know. That's something that's a daily reminder of who I was and who I now am. But in this passage, Jesus is calling his very first disciples. Well, what did that mean for them? What were they signing up for? What did did being a follower of Christ mean for these very first disciples? And in that answer, we can understand better for our own sake. This is an obvious question, but it's an important one. And we can't get the wrong idea about it. 
What does it mean to be a disciple? What does it mean to follow him? Well, it doesn't always mean happy things. It doesn't always mean come to Christ and everything from this point forward will fall into place exactly as you hoped it would. Because it didn't mean that for the first disciples. It meant following Jesus to the cross. Winning actually meant dying. Exaltation actually first meant humiliation. Following Christ meant going to places that you didn't want to go. Doing things you didn't want to do. All because the king took you there and you were following him. It included for these first disciples what they called good and what they called hard and confusing what they were prepared for, and what they were unprepared for. And as we look at this passage this morning, as I mentioned in the beginning, this is really a kickoff. This is a kickoff to a sermon series that I will preach in August, all on the kingdom of God. Now, I realize that by August you won't remember anything that I said here today, and that's okay. Uh, We'll remind you of it. But I hope this whets your appetite for what is to come. Because what I want to do in this sermon and next Sunday is to lay out in a general sense what we mean when we say, what is discipleship? What does it mean to... That's a, that's a word you hear a lot in Christian circles, isn't it? And you'll hear it probably ad nauseum over the spring and summer, and that's okay. What do we mean when we say a follower of Christ? Because that's what you are. If you have repented and you have put your faith in him, you follow him, well, what does that mean? And what we want as your leadership, as your elders and deacons and pastors, we want that path to be obvious to you. (laughs) This is what I am to do as a follower of Jesus Christ. For many of you, that will mean everything remains the same. For others of you, we hope to prod you along in that process. Back in the summer, back in July, I began meeting with a strategic planning team. There's eight of us. And we have met monthly since July, and we have talked about this kind of vision this kind of communication we want to give to you. We've had a lot of honest discussions, honest discussions about the current state of ministries here at the church and what we hope and pray to see God do in our midst in the coming years. There will be some new things, but there'll be a lot of things that you'll realize will stay the same. I say in our new members class each time, and I say it only half-jokingly, but you attend the ordinary church. We are an ordinary church, and we want to be an ordinary church. And what I mean by that is, is we believe, just as we confessed in our affirmation of faith this morning, the ordinary means of grace are the powerful things. The preaching and the reading of God's Word. The sacraments that we observe. Praying with and for one another and together with others. The Holy Spirit uses those in a unique and powerful way in our midst. And we believe that he will always do that, forever. Those are the things that really do change us and prod us and propel us along in this path of discipleship. We have believed that for a long time as a church, and we will continue to. So what we want to emphasize in a way perhaps we haven't before is this path of discipleship. What does it mean? How can I become one? How can I make them? Well, that's the sort of questions we want to answer. But before we get into all of that, what is the kingdom of God? When we say that term, what are we speaking of? Well, that's where Jesus, I think, takes us first in this passage. What is the kingdom of God, number one? About this time next year, we will begin all of the hoopla surrounding our next presidential election, won't we? 
All the primaries and the caucuses begin sometime in January. So sometime probably this summer or the fall, all those who desire to run for office of president are going to start their campaigns. And what do these men and women do when they decide they want to run for office? Well, they announce to the world that they're running for office. And they choose very carefully the place in which they make that announcement, don't they? If they're going to run on a platform of job creation, they may go to a particular business and and, or maybe they go to a city that has high unemployment, and they say, I'm going to work hard for you, right? Or they want to build business, so they go to a place of commerce and say, we're going to continue to build a great economy, or whatever the case may be. They're running on, on a platform of education, so they make their announcement from a university, perhaps. Jesus, of course, is not running a political campaign, and yet the place where he chooses to announce the kingdom is here is actually a very strategically chosen place. Jesus announces this from Galilee of the Gentiles, a place known for its mixed population. There were a lot of Jews that lived there and a lot of Gentiles that lived there. This kingdom of God is not just something that's for Israelites or Jews or Hebrews. It's for the world. It's for every tribe, nation, and tongue. So when he says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, he's looking out to a mixed group of people and saying, it is for you. Repent and believe in me, the kingdom is here. It's not just an ethnic situation any longer. It's now for everyone. Come and be a part of this. Jesus is now ready to begin this public ministry. I think there's lots of reasons that I don't have time to go into. Jesus is now 30 years old. He's been baptized He's been ordained, as it were. That's essentially what his baptismal service was, an ordination into the priesthood. He's gone out into the wilderness. He's been tempted by the devil in in all the ways that Adam had been tempted, and yet Jesus was without sin. How did he conquer those temptations? By the word of God. And so now he's ready, and he announces this kingdom that has come. The kingdom of God is this. Wherever the reign and rule of Christ is acknowledged, that's where the kingdom is. Wherever people believe in God's sovereignty and desire to do his will, there's the kingdom. So it's not a geographical location necessarily. We trust that the churches of Jesus Christ are a place where the kingdom is, but it's it's our people following him, that's the kingdom. In the Old Testament, it was largely limited to the lands of Israel. Now, it's extended to all people. So everything we must do must be then with Christ in mind. What I'm saying and doing, honoring my king. Is it reflecting well? Is it speaking well of him? Am I following him in the things that I do? Is the rule and the expectations of God and his word, is that what I desire? Is that what I want to see? Do I want to follow him? Well, that's what it is, at least in a general sense. How does someone enter into it? I've already given that answer, and I'm not going to elaborate on it too much, but Jesus answers this question simply. How do you enter the kingdom of God? You repent of your sins and you believe in him. He is the only way unto the Father and unto salvation. If you want to be a part of this kingdom, you must first repent of your sins. We've talked a lot about that word, haven't we, in our last few sermons in in the book of Genesis, this repentance and reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers. That's the only way that that relationship was going to be restored. 
And, like, and similarly, the only way we will be reconciled and brought back to the Father is repenting of our sins and believing in Christ. That's what we must do. Jesus is saying you must change your mind about yourself and your sin. Your sin is not just mistakes and miscalculations. It's, it's outright rebellion against your king. You haven't done the things that he wants you to. And in order to come back into that kingdom, you must repent. Jesus says it honestly, as matter-of-factly as he can. The kingdom is here, and the kingdom is about to explode. And he's right. In just a few hundred years, Christianity will have gone all over the known world. We are a part of the kingdom of God because of what had exploded here in the first century. We'll talk about it in August with the, the parable of the mustard seed. Kingdom of God is like a grain of a mustard seed. It is very unimpressive. And yet when planted and nourished, it explodes, and it's the largest of the garden plants. But not only is it huge, the birds come and find their rest, and they nest in that plant and in that bush. So it, it is something that is huge, and it also blesses others. Have we entered that kingdom that is now growing and expanding? And lastly, how do I now live in the kingdom of God? What is it? It's wherever God's reign and rule are found. Am I, am I living according to that? How do I enter into it? I must repent of my sin and turn to Christ by faith. Now, how do I live in it? The follow me aspect of this passage. So Jesus calls his first disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. I think it's likely that they knew of Jesus prior to this calling. Okay, I don't think this is the first time they'd ever met him. But when he calls them, they follow the call is to follow him. I will make you fishers of men. I want you to follow me, and I've got a task for you to do as you follow. The word disciple here refers to someone who is under discipline of a rabbi. What Jesus does in calling these four men, and then eventually twelve, was on the one hand very common, and on the other hand, there's an aspect of it that was very unusual. Rabbis who had a group of men who followed them and learned from them, this happens all the time. Okay? This was, and you, you applied, almost like you apply to a college. You, you would sort of submit your application you know, to Gamaliel or Hillel, the two sort of popular rabbis of the day. I want to be your disciple. And then you were approved or you were not. So Jesus having a group of men following him around was standard practice. What's unusual, though, is he is pursuing them. That's not what happened in the day, typically. They asked to be your, your disciple or learner. Jesus is pursuing and calling them himself. The disciple of a rabbi was also a servant. He didn't just listen and learn. He also took care of their rabbi, making sure he had something to eat or making sure his feet were washed and so on. So when Jesus approaches Simon and Andrew and and James and John, follow me. He's inviting them into the school, as it were, to be a disciple. Jesus is saying, from this day forward, you are mine. You're my students and servants. I want you to leave everything behind, and I want you to be completely devoted to me. So before these men could do much of anything for the kingdom of God, they needed to know who the king was, who it was that had called them. They needed to know what he thought and why he had come and indeed who he was. 
Before they could be sent out to do the works of the kingdom, they needed to learn the ways of the kingdom. They needed to listen to his teaching and watch his tenderness as he healed, to see his authority as he taught, and they needed to know his priorities. They needed to walk with him and talk with him and sit in his feet and listen, to ponder his words. Jesus is calling these men to do something amazing, something world-changing, an unusual journey. Their relationship with him is going to be the reason that they're beaten, is going to be the reason they're scorned. Their relationship with Jesus will be the reason that each and every one of them dies. And yet, these men are going to write the scriptures. They're going to preach amazing sermons where thousands are converted. They're going to plant churches. They're going to be fishers of men. But first, they've got to know him. They've got to be a learner underneath the tutelage of Jesus Christ. The same is true for us. Are you a learner in Christ? Coming to worship, of course, is a wonderful and blessed part of that. But are you constantly learning from Him? Are you reading the Scriptures? Are you praying? Are you also doing it with one another? So that the the wisdom and and the life and the faith of others is rubbing off on you. So that you know what more and more it means to, to love Him and follow Him. If you don't know who he is, and you don't know what he wants, and and you don't know what he loves, then how can we really be out doing the things he wants us to do? We are all underneath his authority. We are all his disciples if we know him by faith. And so when Jesus calls these disciples, it's not, as we often say, it's not an invitation. It's not a suggestion. Kings don't make invitations. Kings do not offer suggestions. Kings speak in one voice. They command. They expect. And that's what Jesus is doing here. You will follow me. Kings do not ask questions. They do not throw out ideas. They do not deliberate with a group. They give orders and commands, and that's why they're kings. Follow me. Follow me. Follow me where I am going. Follow me and do the things that I command you to do. I am the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And it is my right to step into this world and give my commands, as he is doing now. You know, Jesus is a lot of things to us. He, as we talked about in Advent, he, we are adopted into God's family. Jesus is our older brother. He is our Savior. He's our healer and our friend, but he's also King. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling with all power and authority. We must listen to him. We must not question the things that he says. We must follow and do. These men were expected to drop everything. Some of them wanted to go back and pack, and some of them wanted to go back and tell people goodbye, and Jesus says, don't do that. Follow me. And whether it meant for them, of course, it was coming out of a life of being a fisherman. They didn't cease being fishermen. They were following in the midst of that vocation that they had. And we do the same. This call to be a disciple, I'm not calling everyone in this room to now go into vocational ministry. How, for you, are you to be a disciple while also being a teacher, while also being a lawyer, while also being a stay-at-home parent, or whatever it is you may do, how do you follow him while also being these other things? We are carrying out his mission. He tells them, I'm going to make you fishers of men. As you follow me, 
I want you to get others to follow me. It's a simple task, yet it is also uh, multifaceted in its application. Jesus is telling these disciples, and then therefore us, I want you to follow me. And he looks at these men and he says, you're going to literally walk. You're going to walk Israel with me. We're going to go into Samaria, and then eventually we're going to walk to Jerusalem, and I'm going to hang on a cross and die. But until then, you will follow me, and we'll walk through life together. And as we do, I'm going to teach you things about this kingdom. And when I'm gone, I'm going to expect you to go gather others to likewise follow me. That's what discipleship is. I used to have this little picture that hung on a bookshelf at our house. It was something Miles, my, I think he was three when he made it. It was, you know, the teacher stuck his hand in a bunch of paint and, you know, it put the paint on the sheet of paper. So it's his handprint. And it said underneath, hold my hand and walk me through life. It's such a silly thing, but every time I look at it, I just like gush with tears. Like, yes, that's what I want to do, son. I want to hold your hand and I want to walk you through life. It's simple, but is that not the discipleship that we offer to our kids and grandkids? It's, honey, I would do, I want to hold your hand and I want to walk you through life and I want to teach you why we do this as a family. I want to teach you why this rhythm of worship is important. I want to teach you how to play sports. I want to teach you how to do your homework. That one day, it's not that the hand is going to be let go, but that they're going to have to begin to do those things for themselves. And, and they're going to have their own children. And, and you hope that the lesson's stuck, don't you? Jesus Christ is saying, I'm going to hold your hand, and I'm going to walk you through life, disciples, and then I'm going to go to the cross, and I'll still be with you. Every bit as real with you as I was while I was here, but I want you to go and do this for others, to invite them to come and hold my hand as I walk them through life. All of life is one grand lesson, and we learn as we go with our Savior and with our King. He doesn't expect you to know everything before you commit to this journey with Him. You will learn as you walk. He's commanding us to grow more and more like Him. Where are we going, Lord? Wouldn't you like to know that? I'll tell you as you go. How are we going to get there? You'll see as we go. What's going to happen to us along the way? Well, some good stuff and some bad stuff, but don't worry about it. I'll be with you. We are called to follow him. That's really what it means to be a Christian, is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Do you follow him? Yes, you perhaps have made a decision. You've been converted, all very important. Are you now following and learning constantly, always, until your final breath? We are citizens of the kingdom, this huge kingdom that he has called us to. This is the definition of what it means to be a Christian, following him as we dwell and as we seek to expand this kingdom of God. So how are we going to be disciples and how are we going to make disciples? Those are the two big questions for this vision of Westminster. How are we going, to, what's the pathway to continue and forever follow him? And then how are we more effective at seeing more disciples made in Johnson City and beyond? We want to see this kingdom grow. So Christians then, of all people, should be progressives. No, not like the political term has been co-opted. I don't mean it that way. How do we more and more understand how to make disciples where we are? 
It means then, though, well, we've always done it this way, it's just not going to work in this expanding kingdom of God. It's always revisiting that question. This doesn't work anymore. Well, what does? What can we do? Nothing that we teach, nothing that we believe will ever change. The ordinary means of grace are set in stone and in place. But how do we apply that in what we do? That can always be reconsidered. This ministry isn't effective anymore. Let's stop it. Let's do this now. Let's do this to try to be disciples more effectively and make them more effectively. And how can I, we ought to all ask ourselves, how can I be a disciple of Christ even as I do whatever your profession may be? And he may ask anything of you. He may ask you to go to the mission field. He may ask you to adopt a child. He may ask you to move to a new city. He may ask you to be involved in a church plant. After all, it's all for the kingdom of God. It's not for the sake of our comfort. It's not for the sake of our happiness. It's for the sake of the king. That's where we're going. We want him exalted. We want his will done wherever we are. So the question for each of us here today, first to the Christian, are are you following him? Are you allowing his word and his people to disciple you? Are you not just doing this personally, or have you found a group in which to be? You don't have it all figured out yourself. I don't have it all figured out. I need other people to help me, to pray for me. To the non-Christian, I hope you see this is not about fanaticism. This is not about, we, we think we have it all figured out and no one else does. This is about following the king of the universe and doing what he has commanded, doing what he has called. And we want to because of how much he's loved us and how he has given himself for us. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for this kingdom of God. We thank you that it is ever-growing and expanding. We may be frustrated as we look at parts of the kingdom or parts of this world where the kingdom is not growing as we wish, but as we look around the world, it is indeed growing. Lord, that we would see it expand in our own life, in our church, and in our city. Lord, would you call us into deeper and deeper faith? Would you call us to love your will and your ways more and more today? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.